Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science. I'm Danielle Hessler-Jones. I'm a professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, as well as a Siren investigator. And today's conversation is kicking off the first of our four Coffee and Science events related to the topic of adjustment, which refers to healthcare activities that change clinical care to accommodate patients' social conditions. And I'm really excited and honored to talk today with Dr. Rachel Gold, who's an investigator at Kaiser Permanente Northwest Center for Health Research with a joint appointment at the Ocean Community Health Information Network, where she's a lead research scientist. And so for the next 30 minutes, Rachel and I are going to introduce the topic of adjustment, and then we're going to really dive into questions surrounding the use of clinical decision support tools as a social risk adjustment intervention. With that general introduction, Rachel, it is so exciting to be here with you today. It really is. I'm thrilled. It's exciting to be talking about adjustment, which, uh, as you and I know, Danielle, is fairly cutting edge concept um, in some ways and in some ways not, right? I mean, and why don't we start with a definition of adjustment to make sure everyone is listening, knows what we're talking about. I would love that. So I know, you know, I just read a little bit about adjustment from the five A's framework. When I think about adjustment, I think about shaping care recommendations and plans to fit someone's life and more specifically to fit someone's social context. Yes. So whether or not this is prescribing lower cost medication, or, um, you know, I hear from diabetes educators saying, you know, when someone says they're going to engage in walking in their neighborhood, but they don't feel safe in our neighborhood, I say, wait, let's make sure we pick a place for you to, to walk. If it's the inside of a Walmart, wherever it is, so that it fits your life, so that this is feasible and doable. How does that fit for you? What's adjustment mean for you? Those two examples you gave are really interesting. When I think of adjustment, I think about quite similar to what you're saying is how can providers, I mean, my work's in primary care, but but I think this could apply to any, uh, you know, a, a wider variety of care settings. How can the care team need to understand what's going on in the patient's life and potential barriers to them acting on the care plan and think how we then adapt the care plan to make it more feasible for the patient to follow the care plan. And I want to call out now because we found in some of our work that people get a little bit mixed up between assistance and adjustment. Adjustment is figuring out this is the care plan I want you to follow. How can I help make sure that happens? Assistance is different. Assistance is, and we've talked about this in other um, coffee and science podcasts, assistance is okay, the patient's got a social risk, is food insecure, housing insecure, we make referrals to help address that need. But that's not what adjustment is. What adjustment is, I want to make sure you can follow this care plan. And if I need to tinker with the way that plan is structured to make that feasible, then we're going to do that. So I thought it was interesting about the examples you gave. The one, one was about finding lower cost medications, right? That's, that's an example that comes up over and over. And we'll talk about this more, I think, over the course of this half an hour um, in some of the work that you and I and, and Laura Gottlieb are doing, where we're, we're finding that when we talk to primary care teams about what they would like to see in adjustment-focused decision support, 
It's very often about medication, making sure patients can get the meds and take the meds. Your example about, oh, can we get the patient a safer place to walk, I think is kind of in a gray area between a care plan adjustment and assistance. So that's what we're talking about, really, is how do we accommodate? And I, what I'd love to do later in the talk is maybe, I've been thinking a lot about what does adjustment look like, because we've been focusing on hypertension and diabetes in our work with the, the three of us do together. And I was sort of like, what would it look like in other, in not related to that or more generally? And I, I mean, one example I came up with is someone's allergic to a certain medication. <laughs> you don't give them that medication. You give them a different medication. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's not a terrible one. Another one might be if you've got, patients who have uh, some kind of you know, sexual trauma that you, uh, for example, women, you want to make sure they get a female provider or something like that. You know, that, that that's another, that's another kind of adjustment. Right. And how about if someone has transportation difficulties and you offer telehealth, would that fit so, under your role? Absolutely. So let's talk a little about the work that we've been doing because, which has been focused on diabetes and hypertension. One of the things that I have found really interesting, I'll tell the folks a little bit that, that again, Danielle, Laura, and I, are running a um, a trial where we are have, have gone through about a year long stakeholder engagement process to, uh, in community health centers to identify what kind of, well what are adjustment strategies that you use or that you'd like to have decision support to help you with and I've been very interested to see how much that has focused on medication as I said before and 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 transportation related barriers to care. And, and, and I'll talk a little bit to folks, if, oh, I think Danielle, a minute about the very specifics of the decision support, but, I'll, but when we both went through some of the literature to see where there were adjustment strategies and care guidelines, which there are some, but they're often pretty vague. Um, and then when we brought those to our stakeholders and sort of said, what are you thinking about? It was, that was very much the focus. So, I mean, the one that, that for me is quite um, poignant, but came up all the time is if a patient is food or housing insecure, you got to really think about how their insulin's going to last. And does that something that they, you know, if, if they're going to run out of food benefits, benefits by the end of the month, then you're going to need to think about adjusting their insulin dose to accommodate the fact that they may not be getting as much to eat then. And that's, so that's a, a to me, that's a, that's a great example of an adjustment strategy. I want to, you know, I'll quickly, Daniel, I want to talk about just a very high level, just I'm sure most of the folks listening have, have this, you know, understand this, but just to be clear about how social risks create barriers to acting on care plan recommendations. Transportation insecurity, we all know, makes it hard to attend follow-up visits, initial visits, follow-up visits, and also to fill prescriptions, right? If that requires another trip, you know, maybe you get a friend who can take you to the doctor that time, but then who's going to get you to the pharmacy to fill the script the next day, perhaps, you know, or, or you know, something along those lines. And for folks who are simply, who have a broader uh, swath of financial insecurity, housing, food, you know, transportation just being one uh, one element of, 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 of financial um, insecurity, it, it can make it hard to pay for co-pays on the meds. It can make it hard to make sure the appropriate follow-up care is happening. Um, and it's also, it's hard to change your behaviors and, 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 and you know, eat healthier and, and exercise more. But it also can simply be hard to, 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 to get the meds in your body and to make sure that that's happening. So that's what we're I've been very interested to see how much that's where that's focused. So, so, so given, excuse me, so given that those are the very broad strokes, the ways that social risks impede uh, patients being able to act on care plans, I, 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 I suppose it's not that surprising that when we work with our stakeholders, that, that those are the kinds of um, adjustment strategies that are relevant, related to those kind of barriers. Absolutely. And if, if I just can interject, what, you know, one of the things I know we've been, we've been thinking a lot about adjustment this last, last couple of years. And, you know, of course, one, one of the things that 
one of many things that you are such an expert in is in clinical decision supports. I know that's where our fo focus is today. And so I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about from your perspective, why clinical decision supports? You know, adjustment on the face of it, these examples that we're naming, I think they really speak to a lot of people as home of like good person-centered care. So where does clinical decision supports come in and are they gonna save the day? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, one thing, I'll, before I answer that, let me give one piece of, of context because Laura talks about this a lot, which is a lot of our primary care providers do try to make adjustments, right? And certainly, especially in community health centers, but it's not necessarily done in a systematic way. So stuff gets missed. We also know from work of our colleague Saul Wiener that even if information about the patient's social risks are presented in the health record, which is increasingly common, if there's not some kind of suggestion uh, uh, attached about how to manage that, then th that information sometimes is ignored. You know, I think you and I and, and Laura are all very interested in how do we present the information about the patient's social risks in the health record so that it can support action being taken, you know, like adjustment strategies. So I, I think it'd be helpful now, Danielle, for me to talk about this first version of these decision support tools that we're um, working on in, in our study, what, what this decision support might look like. I think it's, I mean, it's been a really, for me, it's been a fascinating the way we've landed after this long process of thinking about it. So we basically, we, we say if a patient has a medical red flag, which we're defining as either, because this is our focus, uncontrolled hypertension and diabetes and a high no-show rate in the last year, and those very much align with, with the red flags that our colleague, Dr. Wiener, talks about, and they've got one of those medical red flags, and we've got known social risks, um, as in we, that we, they have reported any of the poverty-related social determinants or adverse social determinants or social risk is what we prefer to call them, um, then they see an alert and the alert's going to say, hey, this patient has barriers to acting on their care plan. Click here for some suggestions and actions you can take. And so, for example, I'm just going to go through this list. One is a prompt that says, um, hey, to talk to the patient about titrating their insulin. This is per that example I talked about before. One is, um, hey, notification, this medication you're prescribing is not available as a generic. So it's a flag, you know, to say, because we know in community health centers, they certainly try to prescribe generics because they're cheaper, but maybe there's a, there's a flag if, if that's, if that somehow got missed. Um, there's going to be a link to a good RX um, that's going to be provided to say, hey, you know, you might want to just tell the patients about good RX if they are not aware it's the way to get cheaper meds. Um, there will be a text shortcut that also acts as a prompt, which I'm pretty excited about, that's going to say basically, you know, you can just use, put in a couple, like a dot phrase that, that helps you populate a, a note in your notes, <laughs> texting your notes that says, hey, I talked to the patient about whether anything is going on in their life might create a barrier to acting on the care plan. And, he, and then with a drop down menu, and here's what we did to try and address it by sort of providing that text that text shortcut, we hope it's going to act as a prompt to have that conversation. And it kind of quick shortcuts to add information, uh, text to the after visit summary really quickly, including this is what the patient, what the patient takes home from it with them. Ask your pharmacist if there are lower cost medication options. Ask your pharmacist if your meds can be mailed to you, right? So if you don't have to make that one more trip to the pharmacy. And we understand that not every patient is, is in a situation where they can receive medications at their home through the mail. Like maybe they're worried someone will steal it or there's no one there, who knows. But if it is an option, that's a real nice way to get around transportation barriers. Consider using discount codes like GoodRx when buying your medications. That's a patient-facing suggestion. And we've also got some other components of these tools are a, um, 
again, a prompt to talk to the patient about whether they prefer medication home delivery. And then if so, it's like, hey, don't forget to pick a pharmacy <laughs> that offers it. And then another kind of bucket is around, as you sort of alluded to before, Danielle, telehealth visits. Hey, we need you to come back in in two weeks, but maybe we could, if appropriate clinically, could we, you want to do, could you do that to, through telehealth, you know? And, and again, that then assumes you then need to check with the patient that they have ability to take part in a telehealth visit. We know there are disparities around access to broadband. Well, the last one is a, um, a default to a 90-day prescription um, as another suggestion. And the hope is, and we're going to study this, but the hope is that providing these kind of tools that make these the care plan adjustments very easy, just a couple of clicks, that that is how decision support will you know, save the world. Well, we all know there are barriers to decision support tools, period. Like there's way too much in the EHR all the time. Getting users familiar with new tools is a real challenge, a real implementation challenge. But I mean, what do you think, Danielle? What do you, th- do you well, think well, it's going to save the world? You know, tell me if you agree with this. I think it's one piece of the puzzle. You know, I think that we have seen in a lot of our work that there are individuals out there in the clinical workforce who this is coming naturally. And there's those where it's not, or there's missed opportunities. And so I see the clinical decision supports as trying to be one piece of the puzzle to close those gaps on those missed opportunities. One of the things I was hoping we could talk about, Nicole Cook from our audience has really, you know, put words to, and I'm so thankful for that, who asked, you know, would an adjustment be completely dependent upon someone's context? And, you know, how can the care team ensure that they're truly patient-centered? And so I know another area that both of us are passionate about is shared decision-making. And so I wonder if we could chat for a few minutes about, well, how do these clinical decision supports intersect with shared decision-making and patient-centered care? Yes, that's such a great question. Thank you, Nicole. And you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, everybody like, Danielle, we have to talk about shared decision-making too. Well, I think, I mean, ideally, <laughs> ideally, if the provider is considering making adjustments, they would then say to the patient, hey, I'm thinking about making this, would you like this to happen? Is this what you want? I mean, it's, it's such an important point. So I guess my short answer to that is I would hope, <laughs> I would hope that providers when making adjustments would say to the patient, is this going to make your life easier? And that's part of the reason I like that sort of nudge, that kind of prompt that's like, hey, my patient and I talked about potential barriers and here's what we came up with together, but it's kind of touching on shared decision-making. But I, I guess I, the other part of that answer to that is I think it's essential. <laughs> I would really, I mean, A, I hope folks to do it and I also think they really ought to do it. Like if you're going to be kink- tinkering around with the patient's care plan, that needs to be a decision that, that gets made together. I think it's something uh, in the tools that we're going to test out as we're about to pilot them that we are really going to focus on to do the tools support that effectively or should we refine them to do it more so. The other point I want to make here, and it's quite relevant, is I want to be clear that we all need to be very mindful about the potential for adjustments to actually exacerbate health disparities. Now, the idea is that the patient gets the same quality of care and that this, in fact, addresses health disparities by making sure they can act on the care plan, but it is worth paying attention to the potential that someone, some people are getting their care plan tinkered with and some are not, and is, there, is that a potential for further disparities. I don't want to dwell on that too much today, but I just want to call out that like, that's, it's, we can't be too blasé about that. Absolutely. And I'm glad you touched on that because I, I know the Siren Coffee and Science series that we do have an upcoming session with other speakers later this summer that's dedicated Great. to unintended consequences and adjustment. Perfect. So for, for everyone, you know, I really encourage tuning Perfect. in there. So let's focus today's discussion more on 
that this content, decision support, how it works, what it should entail. One thing I would love to ask Danielle, if we can, both of you and of, well, really of the folks listening is, what are we missing? I mean, I just listed out for you a bunch of potential adjustments. You know, again, these are mostly focused on diabetes and hypertension, but I'm really curious to hear what other folks think might be reasonable adjustments to make. Absolutely. I'll start to chime in with this answers your question and also throws out another question. I'm going to admit, add more questions here. What are some of the benefits and trade-offs to having very specific adjustments in, say, a clinical decision support tool like we've been discussing about? Um, and, you know, yes, using shared decision-making and other strategies to make sure yeah. that these are not placed upon an individual and pushed on an individual. Yep. What's, what's the trade-offs between those very specific CDS examples and simply asking someone, yeah. well, I see that you have transportation barriers. I see that, you yeah. know, you're, you're experiencing, you know, some changes in, in your housing um, and some challenges in your housing. We just talked about this certain care plan over here, you know, whatever it is. Is this going to work for you? How do we move forward with something that really works for you? That's such a great question. I would say the pros and cons are, are this. The cons of being proscriptive is that it doesn't, it's not as focused on shared decision-making, then it's more just like, we're going to make the following change. But the cons of just having it be a sort of a more vague shared decision-making approach, like how would you like me to do this, is that they may not know about the ways it could be adjusted. They might feel a little uptight or uncomfortable saying the provider, well, actually, you know, it may, may be easier. And also just make my life easier for the provider to be like, oh, I've got some suggestions right here. So we don't have to figure this out together. The, the decision support tool is making that suggestion for me. I really think there's a, a real pro and con there. And I think it's going to be going to need to figure out where the sweet spot is, like what feels the most comfortable for providers and patients. You think about a 15 minute visit in these primary care CHCs with these complex patients who have both medical and social needs. And oh, it's so much to think about. And the idea, at least the idea is that giving the provider a hand, hey, this, try this, this might help, will make their life easier and is doable within that short visit. Trade off there, I think or a balance to be struck is maybe a better way to put it. Yeah, I do. I really agree with you. We have a couple other interesting comments here from our audience. One is from Laurel Mosser. What are some possible adjustments around distrust in the medical system causing non-engagement? That's a really interesting area for us to explore. Well, yeah, that is interesting. I, I mean, I guess the example I gave early in the discussion of uh, if you've got someone who's a survivor of, of sexual trauma, that you might want to make sure that they're with a gender, a gender appropriate provider, right? Someone who's going to be more comfortable for them. I, I guess I would call it an adjustment to just make sure that you've got an interpreter, you know, this makes mm-hmm. sense with provider and patient in their same language. We know that helps. That's a lot of evidence behind that. Or, you know, making sure that the provider is culturally competent. I mean, that's, I, I don't love that term, but that, you know, making sure that there's a fit there. But I don't, that's an interesting, I don't know that I think about those I guess those are adjustments. I guess they are because if the patient's more likely to come back for the visit because they feel more comfortable with the provider, then I I would call that an adjustment, I guess. It's not quite spot on in the bucket, but but yeah. I feel like that could be just a really a interesting discussion in itself. But I think we have a couple other questions. One is interested in how this can be systematically integrated. Nicole Cook 
poses the responsibility is somehow shared among the patient and members of the team, but also the pharmacists, nurses, social workers, behavioral health clinicians. And I know yep. that's yep. also a topic we 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 are you know yep. really much care about expanding mm -hmm. into. Absolutely. Well, Nicole, that's a great question. I mean, consider, well, so how do we systematize it? The decision support tools can be really useful. I think what we've been working on in our study is fairly provider and pharmacist facing tools. I think, and you know, we can only do so much within the course of one study. It'd be really interesting to expand that to, well, what does the behavioral health person need to see? What does the social worker need to see? What does the front desk person need to see to accommodate the patient better? I, I think that's a whole nother study that we could and should do. I think it makes sense to start with with, you got to start with something. So we're starting with, you know, the prescribing provider. And we have a couple other comments that are really related. Like, is the PCP the right person to, to start with or, or the right person to implement this? Yep. And others might might have had more background yep. and, and or time in their appointment yep. to yep. engage in some of these conversations. Yep. And, and so I think you're right with the work, you know, that we're doing in the that you've so nicely described, it's a starting place. It's not yeah. the ending place. And then in some of the other work that, that we're doing on other projects, it is actually approaching it from a different side. It's approaching it really yeah. more with social workers, case management, yep. behavioral health. And yep. so I think we are, you know, to, to the audience's questions there, yes, there's simultaneously in parallel other programs yeah. that are coming at that. This is a great question, and I, I agree that's worth thinking about. I would say, though, again, the, for my, the logic for me that it, for, for focusing on the PCP is who's prescribing the meds? Um, so if, there's, if it makes sense to prescribe a lower-cost med or a, diff, or, or a med that comes in a blister pack or you know, making sure that meds can only, be, only need to be taken once a day or thinking about the insulin titrating, and that's because of where we've seen the interest in these adjustment strategies, which is on getting the meds in the body. That to me makes sense to have the decision support focus on the people, the prescriber and the pharmacist. I think if there were other adjustments, then, you know, again, around follow-up visits, for example, the, you know, should, could this be done? By, that could be the scheduling person. Like that doesn't have to be the PCP. If the PCP, if there's an agreement ahead of time that for certain kinds of visits, we can do it by telehealth. So I think it maybe depends on what the content of the adjustment is. And again, I'm curious to see if people have suggested any other kinds of adjustments, because I, I keep feeling like our team is missing something. Yeah, yeah. but a couple of other ideas for adjust. So one is adjustments to care plans for chronic kidney disease, since it requires vast dietary shifts, a high demand of patients. Yep. Um, we also, just to pick up on the thread that, that you were having, I, I agree, you know, when we're talking about medication adjustments, the primary care provider or the, the licensed prescribing clinician, you know, they're, that really makes sense. A lot of my work is in behavioral health and with our allied health professionals. So it's focused on other types of adjustments. And so I really do think, yes, there, there is a lot of potential there um, as well. I am seeing that, my goodness, our 30 minutes has gone by so quickly. So Rachel, I want to let you have a last thought here. And then I have a few wrap-up statements. I think my last thought is that we're, we have a lot of questions about how to do this right. It's my understanding that there's just, this hasn't been done in a systematic way, yet we have a lot to learn about potential negative effects, which I know we'll talk about later, the right way to do this, how patients feel about it, how we could do it more efficiently. I mean, I think I would leave people with, there's just a lot of questions to answer here. And 
like any good science, like we have a hypothesis that this is going to work, but it might not, it might not help. Well, we're going to find out. And then I would also remind people, because I am an implementation scientist that like, you can build the best decision support tool in the world, but if you don't implement it effectively, no one's going to use it. I just want to add that element too. If you build it, they won't come. You got to train them. <laughs> so I think that's where I would like to end, to end it. Danielle, I, it, you know, it's always a pleasure hanging out. Is, the pleasure is all mine. I have enjoyed this so much. Thank you everyone for your engagement. That's all the time we have today, but I want to express my gratitude again to Rachel for this lively discussion for all of us joining and engaging with those questions. Please stay tuned for our next session on July 30th, where Dr. Julia Adler-Milstein and Dr. Tiffany Vainot will explore opportunities for social informatics to inform social care adjustment strategies, continuing on with this adjustment series and thinking about how all these different pieces of puzzle can contribute to adjustment strategies. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science Series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurelien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produced the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.